Hello, Internet, and welcome to the first episode of Chris and Co. Chris and Co is the podcast where I get together with all my friends and we just have discussions about their particular interests. We talk about world culture, pop culture, technology, news, and current events. And this podcast really stemmed from the idea that everybody's always telling me, you and your friends should have a show. And I was like, hello, I'm a New Yorker. I need to have my own podcast. New Yorkers are obsessed with podcasts. And so we threw together this episode. It was amazing. And I just want to thank all the hosts for being here. And we're just going to jump right into it. So kicking things off is Amanda with World Culture. I am here with the amazing Amanda Gay, who is the founder of Amanda Bear Arts and the amazing blogger Our World Canvas and <laughs> co-founder of Whimsy and runs all these amazing social media accounts literally across the country oh my gosh <laughs> and your resume goes on and on and on but I think <laughs> I have to be most excited about the fact that you are my first resident New Yorker on the podcast oh that's that's the most impressive part of the entire resume. <laughs> <laughs> let's be honest so thank you for being on and leading yeah, our world culture section because Amanda is world culture, like, in a person. You and your husband <laughs> travel for our world canvas, and you are always seeing amazing plays and making art and consuming art, and there's definitely, like, not a better fit for you. But would the, would the real question be, then, that I have no true experience in one, or expertise in one specific thing? If I am a, a culture person, doesn't that mean that I'm just kind of spread across everything, but I don't have a real true Not at all. I don't know. <laughs> okay. One right. thing I like cannot that word. define you. <laughs> okay, great. So all for right. our inaugural oh. pilot episode, Amanda is going to talk me through some, would I say musical theater stuff? Because I'm surprisingly ignorant on the matter and talk to me about some of your favorites <laughs> some of the things that are on your mind lately yes. like I'm, I'm ready yes. to be enlightened let's do it let's talk Broadway so Broadway is definitely one of my favorite things and like you said resident New Yorker here been able to see a lot of shows over my eight years as a New Yorker which is great um so we're kind of in like this really cool like I'm not going to say the golden age of Broadway because there are snobs that would say that was like 20 years ago and I'm inclined to agree but um, right now we have a lot of like original plays that are going to last for like years Um, one of them of course being Hamilton but we'll get to that later Um, the other uh, two that I really love that people don't talk a lot about would be so of course you have like wicked and lion king and aladdin our microphone just so really (laughs) cut us off you were listening to these great broadway classics and then the microphone was like i'm jealous i don't have tickets i gotta go get tickets right now exactly yes yeah the things like lion king and wicked and um phantom of the opera and the ones that are like 
the Broadway shows that tourists come to see. Yeah. Um, but I have like a list of some that, uh, you know, are really popular. They've, they've had a lot of uh, Tony nominations and Tony, Tony wins, mm-hmm. um, but not a lot of tourists will go and see them. So specifically, like very, very top of my list. And I know you, Chris, have heard me talk about it all the time. Um, it's Come From Away. Mm-hmm. Um, super good show. Really awesome. It's one of those shows where you're like crying one second and laughing the next second. Like I think within the first three minutes of the show, I was crying. That's the best. Though. Really good. Yeah, seriously. Any listeners out there, just like um, check it out and read the synopsis of it and you'll want to see it right away. But um, beyond that, I'm going to kind of just like skip through these, just throw them out, like name Absolutely. drop, you know. <laughs> um, the next would be Dear Evan Hansen. And I think that's probably a little bit more popular than Come From Away. Like people know that name a little bit yeah. more. Um, also a fantastic show. I haven't seen it without Ben Platt, though. I saw it. Um, he was the lead uh, part of the original cast, and he absolutely carried the show. So I'm not exactly sure like how it would be without him, um, but it won t- the Tony for Best Musical. So obviously it holds. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So and then uh, so I wanted to like throw those two out because they're fantastic. But, you know, the heart of the matter of Broadway right now is Hamilton. And we just got to talk about it. We just got to talk about Hamilton. Everybody's yeah, got to talk I think about Hamilton. Yeah, one of those interesting things, though, is like, unfortunately, Broadway isn't for everybody. And I think when you have a show like Hamilton that seeps into, like, everyday household nomenclature, like, yeah. that's when you know it's a big Absolutely. deal. And I think that's also, to your point, like, Broadway's kind of entering in this, like, new era where... There are Mm -hmm. a lot of shows coming in right now where they're getting really big notoriety and, like, people are talking about it in a way that, at least in my lifetime, they haven't talked about it before at this scale. Yeah. Broadway's always been a highbrow art. And I think, personally, I would say Hamilton has had a huge part in, like, bringing Broadway to the next generation. Absolutely. Lin-Manuel Miranda specifically has made sure that that's happened in like bringing public school kids to free showings of Hamilton, um, bringing Hamilton performances to Puerto Rico, things like that. So he's like making he's very intentional about making it a an art for the public um, rather than like this highbrow art, which is really cool. And then also just the fact that you can listen through the entire soundtrack of Hamilton um because the entire show is just singing so you can listen through the entire soundtrack of hamilton so like you said it's in every home like everybody can experience the play through the music just because like tickets are so far out at this point like that's how i experienced hamilton at first like i got to know and love the music and then being able to see Mm -hmm. it come to life on the stage was just like another step yeah absolutely and it's like it's kind of hard to argue that Hamilton that there are like negative parts to Hamilton I I almost I I can't even think of anything like first off I think Lin-Manuel is our modern day Shakespeare (laughs) I'm very confident about that Um, but also like people like Andrew Lloyd Webber who um, wrote Cats and Phantom of the Opera like even he has said that I think the quote was like 
around the lines of like it's the most exciting thing he's seen on Broadway in like 50 years and he sees it taking musical theater in an entirely different direction so like even if like Broadway kings like Andrew Lloyd Webber is saying that you know it's a pretty objective truth that (laughs) that Hamilton is doing things right (laughs) yeah so and you saw it you saw it It was your first it was my first Broadway and I'm so honored that it was my first Broadway it was yeah seriously gorgeous though and there's some such depth and creativity to it and i think that's the other part i think there's he has tapped into something that everybody is interested in and Mm -hmm. that's the hardest thing to do now especially in 2018 um -hmm. you know the show's been running for a couple years now but like it's pretty much bridging the divide i don't really see like this is one of the only areas knock on wood that is like untouched by like political divide right now except for like when Mike Pence went Mm, true yeah and in a way like it's almost become an anthem for like our generation and probably others too but it's become an anthem for us to like take history into our own hands which is really powerful especially now today yeah and I think it's an interesting narrative on how we can I don't want to say redefine but establish like history and how we're going to tell that story yeah yeah and also like if when you see the play you just see like how flawed the founding fathers are and um of course like historians would know that but that's not something the general public of america Mm -hmm. is really taught that these people were actually flawed humans as well and that's pretty powerful just in the era we are now like knowing that we as flawed humans can take history into our own hands and i could go on and on about like how powerful hamilton is how how much it parallels the time we are in now um and then also beyond that just like how much it inspires individuals to like pursue their passions or um lin-manuel specifically uh inspires people to pursue their art and yeah i just could go on and on i'm i'm it's a force absolutely and i just I think it's so interesting, like, even his tweets are beautiful, and also his tweets, like, come across my timeline yeah. all the time, and and he's just such a creative soul, like, to yeah. a whole, like, a whole yes. new high, like, I, I can't understand how much, like, original content is just pouring out of his his mouth or, you know, being written down. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, like, what would it be like to have his brain Absolutely. Yeah. But that's actually a perfect segue because now I do want to talk specifically about Lin-Manuel Miranda. I want to talk about what he is up to today. So, um, again, like, I just want to uh, start this entire, like, part of the podcast by saying I think he is our modern day Mm -hmm. Shakespeare and he is a beautiful, wonderful man and artist. Anyway, so what is he up to right now? So, um, as far as I know, He is uh, kind of so okay. So in the Heights, are you are you familiar with In the Heights? It was the play that he wrote before only vaguely musical he wrote. Pretty much that's as much as I know about it. Is that it was his play before Hamilton, (laughs) and it was written in a similar style, and it was written about uh, Washington Heights in New York and about local life there. It actually won four Tonys, so it's not like he was like a quote unquote nobody. Um, before Absolutely. Hamilton, I hate that term, nobody, but still, uh, he, he had, um, 
uh, he had won four Tonys previously to, to yeah. Hamilton, uh, which is really interesting. However, um, the point I was trying to make there is they're actually making a musical or a movie adaption of In the Heights, and it's coming out in 2020. Oh, okay. Which is very exciting. Yeah. So um, I actually don't know how hands on he is with that. I do know that he has been quoted saying that um, I actually wrote this quote down because it's really funny. So about making a movie musical someday, he said, that's one of those things that I would kick myself if I didn't try to do. It's a bucket list that's thing. Amazing. So, yeah. So how cool would it be? Like checking off this bucket list thing with his own yeah. musical. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, when people ask him if Hamilton though, he said he basically just straight out said no. I think it'd be hard to um, capture that but, in a movie. Yeah. And Hamilton needs its mm-hmm. time on Broadway. It needs its time on the stage. Yeah. So um, he is doing, he is involved with the 2020 movie In the Heights. I'm not exactly sure how involved. What he is doing now, though, he's working for Disney. So I think you know he wrote the music mm-hmm. for Moana. Yeah, and I've seen him like popping up more and more on like Disney-related things. Yeah, he's kind of um, he's kind of sold his soul to Disney. <laughs> From an outsider's opinion, that's kind of what it seems. So he he wrote the music for Moana. He's doing an acting role in Mary Poppins oh. Returns. Um, have you seen the I trailer have. for that? Yeah, he's going to be the, like, chimney sweeper or something, I think. Yeah, which is going to be fun. Like, nothing wrong with any of this. He is also signed on to write music for the live adaption of The Little Mermaid. Oh, okay. Yes. Which is actually, like, uh, so I I love Disney, but it's turned into, like, a media machine. Like, it's kind of taking over the world. And I'm, like, a little bit, it's like the corporate of art. You know what I mean? And you know how I feel about corporate (laughs) life. Hashtag corporate life. I'm not a fan. So it's just a giant machine and he's kind of getting sucked into it. But the thing, like, I can't say anything negative about that because he has actually said that the Little Mermaid is the reason he started writing music. Yeah, it was um, the song Under the Sea. He said he would just sing it all the time. And it was the thing that, like, sparked him to start writing his own music when mm-hmm. he was a child. And um, he actually said that he, he, I don't know if this is true, but he said that he called in sick the day The Little Mermaid came out on VHS. Iconic. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, good for him. He's freaking living his dream. That's amazing that he's, like, able to do that with a piece of art that inspired him from such mm-hmm. an early age. So that's awesome. Um, but the part where I'm like, okay, he's sold his soul a little bit is he's also a voice actor for the Disney Channel TV series of DuckTales. Oh. So I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit because I grew up with DuckTales and like, okay, see, I didn't, I can kind of maybe understand why he'd be like, um, yes, Okay. (laughs) because DuckTales was awesome. However, On the other hand of that, like, <laughs> I'm going to play both sides real quick. Um, I haven't seen the new DuckTales, but also I didn't really think we needed to bring back DuckTales. Like, there are yeah. some <laughs> things that we're bringing back from the 90s that I'm like, yes, like, I need some more yeah. of that in my life. Yes, like, and just bringing be- things back in general. Like, obviously, Netflix recently right. brought back Queer Eye, and that's awesome. But, like, we yes. don't need to bring back everything. 
And I do understand that, like, it's not that specific, like, the DuckTales specifically isn't for yeah. us. Like, that would be for the next generation. And he actually has said that. And he's a dad. So I could see how that would, like, hit him home for him a little bit more than it does for yeah. us or, yeah. or me specifically. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. But, um, yeah, I just kind of feel like the modern day Shakespeare on DuckTales being a voice actor for DuckTales putting his best light on Amanda he just like wants to like yeah like you do you Lynn you do you but uh yeah so I don't know what what are your thoughts on that um I see both sides of it like I think you know if Disney had that big of an impact and they came to him and they were like do you want to do this like Who's going to say no? Um, right. But I guess yeah. the question I would have for you is like, what would you rather him do right now? Well, that's a good question, especially because I think, I can't remember the exact number because numbers never mm-hmm. stick in my brain for some reason. But I think Hamilton took around like nine sure. years to write. So there's there's no way of me knowing whether or not he's started writing the next mm-hmm. thing, you know? I, I can't assume that just because he's voice acting <laughs> DuckTales that he's also not yeah. writing, you know? So, that's good. And like you said, he's living his best life, and it's really cool to see him, like, being a part of something that inspires him. I just have, like, this little bit of bitterness for Disney. So, every time I see, like, Lin-Manuel Miranda, <laughs> the Shakespeare doing something for disney i'm like okay all right and i think that plays into like an interesting overarching narrative about the world we live in today where a lot of these things that we like grew up with like they're definitely not as magical as they were and that's not said in like a cynical way but just that like disney is very much this like machine and like growing up like we like right. and i would say, i'm going to use food as an example like there's so many restaurants we grew up with that now we're like oh but things can be so much better <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's very true and i think yeah and then there are also like things we don't even mm-hmm. think about like freaking capitalism which is a whole yeah. other podcast <laughs> but that comes into this like idea of the corporate art like making art simply for money's sake which again is a whole other podcast because I could talk on and on about like the difference between uh creating art to make a buck and creating art to create art you know and I do think Disney creates art Uh, Disney as like a whole (laughs) creates art to make money of course like they that is what they exist for I'm not saying there aren't artists involved sure. with it, obviously, sure. who, like, find their passion, like Lin-Manuel does, um, through working mm-hmm. with Disney. And and that's really cool. But um, it's, it's different, though, because yeah. now <laughs> we have things like Hamilton that are such originals. And so right. when you have these new up-and-coming originals where people are creating, like, raw content, mm-hmm. and then there's, like, but we could remake this. And it's just really stare. funny. It's, it's it... like microwave food, right? Like it's, it's just like, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. serves its purpose, but you can tell it's not as good quality. And it comes in waves too, because like last year's Tony's going back mm-hmm. to Broadway, last year's Tony's were about Dear Evan Hansen, Come From Away, Hamilton, like all these super original sure. pieces. And then this year's Tony's featured like SpongeBob SquarePants, Mean Girls, um, 
like Harry Potter, the cursed child yeah. just came out. Uh, Frozen just came out, you know, and there's nothing wrong with those. Actually, all four of those I haven't seen yet because I haven't been in New York for the past few months. Um, but they're on my list. Um, and I have a feeling a whole other podcast will be de- dedicated to Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. That but sounds anyway. fantastic. Make sure you write this down. Somebody, <laughs> yes. assistants, All right, great. sponsors, I don't know who, listeners, please write that down because we need to talk about Harry Potter. We need to talk about Harry we Potter do. books. We need to talk about the houses. We need to talk about characters. Yes. We need to talk about. Absolutely. Like, this just got renamed like Harry Potter section. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds but great. Yeah, maybe we'll do it for like October or something because apparently Harry Potter is Halloween according okay, to, yeah, that makes to the sense. modern world. Let's I guess. do it. And also Christmas and also Sounds Thanksgiving. <laughs> and also yeah, and just day. also every day. <laughs> Harry Potter every day. And if you don't understand it, we're sorry. We're sorry you have a sub life. <laughs> I would say that Harry Potter and Hamilton are two of the uh, pieces of art that have literally changed my life. That's amazing. So. And I know a lot of people have uh, feel similarly. I mean, Absolutely. Potter, I mean, so. we wouldn't be talking about Harry Potter if Harry Potter was not Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you've given me so much to That's... think about, and I'm I feel so much more enlightened now. Oh I'm, well, I'm good. elevated now. I I can as a world culture specialist. Was, that is my. I job. didn't know he was doing all these things. I knew like little yeah. bits and pieces, but. I think we're going to have to keep our eye on him and see what he's up to next. Oh, because, sure. and like, I guess the thought I just had is maybe he's just wanting something like easy to pay the bills. Like, not to say what he's doing is insignificant, oh, but yeah. like, his child right. is fairly new, right? I think he has two question marks. <laughs> we're so good at children. <laughs> It's like I know everything about him except for how many That's kids so he funny. has. I, I really feel like care. one of his, his kids is very young and, and very. Yeah, I think we just yeah. So maybe he's like, oh, you know what? I'll write a couple songs out real quick for Disney. Yeah, spend some time with my baby, and then yeah, he's actually said gotcha. Said that like yeah, after he left Hamilton, he was like, I need a vacation. Yeah. So I I didn't mention he will be um actually premiering as Hamilton Alexander Hamilton again, um in Puerto Rico's stage version. That is amazing. Yes. Is that going to be like select showings, or is he going to be doing that for a little while? um select showings slash like uh like a few okay, weeks okay. you know what i mean so everybody's yeah, got a and chance it's, um, like russian go see yeah he's opening tickets specifically to puerto rican That's residents amazing. which is yeah. awesome we don't need <laughs> we don't need any of us flying to puerto rico to yeah, see him again, yeah you know like they absolutely it, so yeah. yeah well thank you so much this has been fabulous yes yeah, so and much i'm fun. so excited to talk to you next week bye all right Talk to them. I don't really know what this says about me, you, or our friendship, but I got myself pumped up for your segment by listening to Work It by Missy Elliott. Okay, that's so on point. That's so on brand. Welcome to the podcast, Zoe. Oh, thank you for having me. Of course. I'm so excited to have you doing pop culture for us. I'm I'm just here for it. Oh, me too, honestly. And speaking of other things that I've been listening to, um, I took a little nap this afternoon and I fell asleep listening to The Light is Coming by Ariana Grande. And I feel like we just need to unpack this for a second. And I need to talk 
with you about like our feelings on the song yes so i want you to go first because i have some thoughts but i want your like un um uninfluenced opinion so to speak okay gonna be straightforward and honest with you i've only heard it probably three or four times okay i haven't given it like a full-on in-depth listen that's fine it's bobby yeah. I like it. Okay, so same. And I'm kind of in the same, like, headspace as you. Like, it's totally a bop. You can totally kind of, like, jam along to it. But yes, I exactly. will say, like, No Tears Left to Cry put me on the floor. Like, this was, like, the first side, the first song on my Pride playlist. And it, like, like just wig. Like, it's such a good song. And it's got, su- it's so Ariana. And it's it's just great. And then I felt like the light is coming. Like, it's a bop, but, like, it feels kind of out of place. Yeah, I get where you're coming from on that. I could see that. Like, there's a large portion of the song where she's just saying, the light is coming, and that's it. And, like, she's got such a vocal range and depth that, like, it just left me wanting more. And especially, like, Considering the fact that it was a Nicki Minaj um, collab, I was I was excited because like "Side to Side" is my favorite song by oh my Ariana. God. Like, such a jam. And I don't know. I just had to. I had to put this out there in the universe. I love the song. Totally a bop. It just left me wanting more, and I'm curious to see. Like, "Sweetener" is a 15 track album, mm-hmm. and I'm curious to see like. Out of those 15, we've gotten two songs so far. It means there's a dozen more songs we're going to get. And I'm just curious to see, like, is the album going to be more The Light Is Coming or No Tears Left to Cry? Because that's really going to influence, like, how much I play this album. Yeah. Compared to, like, um, the last album. And, yeah, I'm just, I'm hesitant. Yeah. You're optimistically cautious. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I feel kind of the same way about Bed, which is the feature Ariana did on Nikki's new album, yeah. which I've only listened to a couple times. And again, a bop, but I'm just like, where's Side to Side? Where's Get on Your Knees? Like, yes, the collabs from those two albums were so strong. And maybe that's that's just it. Like, the bar is really high, and my expectations very high. Maybe it's not fair to them. Yeah. Speaking of the bar being set too high, I hear you have some feelings on TanaCon. Ah, uh, TanaCon. Good lord. <laughs> uh, like, just just start me off because, like, I know the gist of it, but I'm not really familiar with her channel. Okay. Um, for those of you that know literally nothing, um, Tana 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 Mojo. Tana. Not Tana Mongoose or Tana Minoj. Oh my gosh. Tana Mojo. She is a YouTuber. She's 20, so she's my age. She's okay. like a little baby. And she's best known on YouTube for her like story time videos. Okay. Her, he fucked me with a toothbrush. I'm sorry for saying the N word. She's a little crazy. She's like shock value. Got it. Yes. Very much so shock value. So Tana last year was for the life of me I can't remember what it's called but it's Joey Graceffa's YouTube Red Show Okay. so she was on that so she was at VidCon right? Sure 
So VidCon is like the biggest YouTube convention. It's been around for a decade mm-hmm. now. And they wait the way they separate that is their passes. So you have like yeah. your normal like subscriber passes. Mm-hmm. You have creator passes, you have featured creator passes, and you have like VIP passes. Yeah. So basically the biggest difference with the passes is how you get around VidCon. Mm-hmm. So Tana had just your like your normal creator pass, which was honestly like a little stupid on VidCon's part, considering she had a panel for this YouTube Red show okay. that she had to be at. And so with the normal creator passes, like you have to go through the lobby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't get any backstage. So she of course she's Tana. She's fucking Tana. So she has this like big following. So it caused a little bit of like a riot in the lobby of VidCon. Gotcha. See, I didn't know this part. I didn't know that she yeah. had I knew she had attended VidCon the previous year, but I didn't know that it was like an ish. Like I didn't know there was an issue. Yeah. So then when she went up to go for her panel, they were like, you don't belong here, like, blah, 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 whatever. She basically got kicked out. Oof. Yeah. So then this year, they decided to ban her for life. So she's banned from VidCon for life. Oh, interesting. So why do you think that is? Like, why do you think they decided that, like, she just can't attend now? I think it's because she made such a big deal about it. Mm -hmm. And she is, she's not a very brand friendly youtuber sure but I, so I think that definitely has a little bit to play in there yeah it sounds like it and now i know there are other youtubers that get featured that aren't as necessarily brand friendly at vidcon because it's not like a google run event um however i will say like vidcon has like you said been going on over a decade and overall like despite putting all those creators there like it's been relatively drama free. You've had those like fringe like issues with like a fan following a creator back to their room and stuff like that. But they've continued to get better and better. And I feel like there's never been like drama. Yeah. And that is also very much so part of Tana's brand is she she's drama. Gotcha. She's this twenty year old girl who's from Vegas. She's very out there, like so I feel like part of it is she caused so much of a scene over it. Mm-hmm. They were like, listen, we're just going to like not have to deal with this anymore. And they banned her. I feel like I almost kind of understand it. Like, yeah. I almost would agree with their position. Like, I actually, I think not almost like I think I do. Like, I feel like if I were them, if I were Hank and John, I'd be like, you know what? Like, this is too much to handle. Like, no yeah and she did put out like this big like it's what an hour 18 minute video basically saying like f vidcon like you're stupid like Mm -hmm. so i understand where they're coming from gotcha so then tana decided since she can't go to vidcon she's gonna make her own convention sure called tanacon so tana wanted she wanted tanacon to be in anaheim where vidcon is Mm mm-hmm the same weekend that VidCon is this year. So that, when she decided that was mm, a good, I think it was two months before, one or two months before VidCon. Yeah. So that's not a lot of time to plan a convention. Mm -hmm. So basically she hired this, 
like, I guess, I don't even know what you would call them. Like a management team okay. that puts on events. It's called Good Times Live. Okay. So she hires them. They're like, she wants it to be free, but she also wants there to be VIP passes. But she doesn't want the VIP passes to cost that much. And she wants to give away goodie bags that are four times the amount of the tickets that you bought with the VIP passes. And she wants this and she wants that. And Tana has so many brilliant ideas. Like she, I mean, she got big YouTubers to go to this thing. Like yeah. She had Jane Dawson. She had the Gabby show there. Like she's got big names coming. Yeah. To- Cause I like, I saw YouTubers that like, I know like tweeting about being there and like, when things started to hit the fan a little bit, like, be like, do I still have a panel? Like, what's happening? Like, so yeah. it definitely, like, made some waves. And it seems like I understand she's, like, coming from a good place. But on the other hand, she seems a little bit like the bitter girl at the party that, like, wants to throw her, her own party because she didn't get invited. No, and that is exactly, that's exactly what it was. Like, She was bitter, and she's trying to pull this whole convention off in a short amount of time. Now, if she would have really sat down and taken, you know, a year to plan this convention, Mm -hmm. if she would have done it next year, the same time that VidCon was, the same weekend, same place, like, all that, I'm sure it would have gone off. It would have been amazing. But it was such a time crunch, and she just wanted all of these things for her time period that were so unrealistic that it just it failed gotcha and like she so i've watched a lot of the videos mm-hmm. like from like like shane dawson and like other youtubers and like people that were there like explaining what was going on and for the most part the fans that were there don't at all blame tana like they understand they don't blame any of the other youtubers that mm-hmm. were there like they realized that it was just poorly planned yeah and so basically the hotel that they had got it was like the marriott in anaheim Mm -hmm. and they were like oh i guess michael who runs good times told tana that that it could hold five thousand people so tana sells five thousand tickets and when in reality if you go to the marriott's website too it could the maximum capacity is a little over a thousand people okay so she's already outsold this thing by five times what it can handle that's crazy yeah and so they like it's been a lot of back and forth between tana and michael mm-hmm. and they're both i be, i honestly think they're both trying like understanding that they're to blame it's not oh well none of this was my fault you were the planning person like they're both yeah taking responsibility for it well that's good yeah but so basically because the venue was so small, there were, you know, 4,000 fans standing in the parking lot for up to seven hours. That's crazy. And didn't, so maybe this is totally false, but I thought I had read somewhere that, like, literally, like, 20,000 people showed up. Like, it was something crazy. So, okay. So this is where that comes from. So Tana had originally believed that the venue could hold 5,000 people. So when she was inside and the venue was packed, she thought that those 5,000 people were in there. 
And being gotcha. that the Marriott is five minutes down the street from where VidCon was, like mm-hmm. she thought that all that crowd was like ex- like excess people from VidCon coming over to like see them and like this and that. Because VidCon's crowd was like 35,000 people, 40,000 people. Okay. So, you know, she's 20. She doesn't know what 20,000 people look like, 15,000 people look like. Like, mm-hmm. so thinking that because the Marriott's already filled, like, she's like, oh my God, I can't believe we have like, you know, 20,000 people here, 15,000 people here. Like, that's amazing. Like, I'm so proud. When in reality, it was just the other 4,000 people that already had tickets that couldn't get in there. Gotcha. Yeah. That's crazy. And so in the beginning, everybody was like, oh, my God, like, they're scamming us of their, our money. Like, because, I mean, people flew from all over to be here. Like, yeah, they want refunds. They want this. They want that. And, I mean, I don't blame them. They were standing out there for, you know, what, nearly seven hours. Most of them have, mm-hmm. like, some of them have third-degree sunburns. And it's just, like, they had no food, no water, because, you know, you don't expect to be standing outside for seven hours. Were they told, like, they were still going to get in? Or, like... So... Because for me, if I would have seen 4,000 people out there, I'd have been like, bye, I'm going to Shake Shack. Like, I don't have time No, so they weren't told until later that it was completely canceled. So they were told that they, like, the fire marshals shut it down the first day. Okay. So... The fire marshals came. They said, listen, like, you're way over capacity. And Tana was like, that's fine. Let's find somewhere else. So Good Time Live sure. is, like, basically it's one person. It's Michael. He's, like, scrounging to find somewhere else to do it. He can't find anywhere else. So the next day, everybody wakes up. And because they couldn't find anywhere else to do it, and they can't keep doing it at the Marriott, it's canceled. It was just up and canceled. And so, like, yeah. all the creators, like, all of the people that came to see them like all found out at the same time it was canceled Interesting. yeah so yeah but that basically just means that like the people that pay to fly there like they're out yeah. money like even if they paid like for tickets and stuff like that like they're still not getting those flights back those hotels back exactly but I guess where I see some of the issue on Tana is, like, they promised these, like, goodie bags, and, like, some of them literally just had, like, one condom in them. Oh, yeah, no, they were the it. Tana like, con- What's What's with that? There was, no, these goodie bags, okay, so the price for your featured fucking creator pass, which was, like, the VIP mm-hmm. one, is $63, pretty sure that was like about gotcha. there so she promised she's like i'm gonna give out these vip passes they'll get you their like fast passes you can go to like meet and greets like this that and the other she's like, or you can get free yeah. passes like it's up to you it's whatever but if you get these like vip featured creator passes you're gonna get a goodie bag it's gonna be worth like four times like what you paid for your ticket like they're gonna be great mm-hmm Gucci belts and like you know Tana branded things yeah but given the fact that she had a month to plan all this you can't order like expensive things to be here in that time so it ended up being I think most of them were those cheap like plastic 
drawstring bags that you get at like collagen or mm-hmm. orientation and sure. um tanacon condoms um one of those little uh it's like a phone holder it's not like a pop socket but it's like the weird other ones with the little okay. like fabric string. <laughs> you know but like so i understand the hotel aspect like that obviously snuck up yeah. on her but like what what's your excuse for that like she knew this in advance like there's no way she didn't well so from what i've gathered is that tana had no clue that this hotel could only hold a thousand people like neither tana nor Mm -hmm. michael knew that this hotel had such a small capacity and i think the problem is like michael's only 21 Tana's 20 these Mm -hmm. are their kids like they're very young adults they don't like Tana doesn't understand how the world really works and I don't think Michael does either and I think they are just like Tana's a promiser she wants this she wants this she wants this like she's gonna make the Mm -hmm. best thing for her fans she's gonna do this she's gonna do that and she just doesn't realize how much work that's gonna be and how you need a longer period of time to plan these things out you can't just you know throw a convention together in a month like that's not feasible i think she just wanted this so bad and she wanted it to succeed so bad and she wanted to like help her fans out so bad that she was gung-ho on it being you know this past weekend it needs it needs to be 2018 i can't Mm -hmm. wait and i think that's where essentially where her and michael failed Gotcha. So what do you think this, like, means for her going forward? Like, re- like one or two sentences, like, does this affect her? Like, does this hurt her? I think, depending on how the next few weeks goes with her and how she handles the situation from here on is really mm-hmm. going to affect her fans. Like, I've had people, like, I've heard people say that they've you know watch her youtube videos since she really kind of started and they have lost all respect for her and i have other people who say like listen like we understand that she just really wanted this to happen like she's young but she needs to own up to her shit and i think that basically how she handles the next few weeks and how she decides to own up to this kind of like this whole thing is gonna Mm -hmm. affect her interesting but the general (laughs) consensus on youtube from fans is that they don't really blame any of the creators that were there they understand that it was more of a poor management poor planning deal Mm -hmm. so i don't think i think as long as she owns up to that and realizes that you know a month is not enough time for convention I don't think she's going to really suffer that big of a loss. Interesting. That's that's just crappy. Yeah. Though. Like, I would be so angry. Oh, for sure. So what else is on your mind? What, what, what are you obsessed with this week? Oh, my God. I don't even know. Listen, I'm an old person. All I have is Facebook. So it's a shocker I even know any pop culture. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, that's right. I keep forgetting you're off I Twitter. Know. And it's the I'm worst. off Twitter. I'm off Instagram. I basically use um, BuzzFeed's here's your celebrity Instagram you might have missed and funny tweets to like keep me, keep me hip and like fresh. That's yeah. iconic. Um, I've been increasingly obsessed with Chrissy Teigen lately. She's a queen. Um, I just, she's just doing such good things, yes. you know? Luna is like, I relate to her daughter. Mm-hmm. I am her. I think it's the funniest thing ever. And her and John are so oh my- cute. Like, I love genuine celebrity oh, couples. me too. No, I love their ongoing, like, John is Arthur. It's wonderful. It's And great. the fact that she has, like, Luna in on it now, too, it's just adorable. So, I know I wanted to touch base on this whole Childish Gambino Ooh, yes. thing. Did you listen to the original I song? I did. Thoughts. So, well, I guess sorry before before you hear this, I should just oh yeah. So everybody pretty much knows the Childish Gambino song. Um, this is America. It blew up when it came out. It was such a like big like cultural moment, commentating on what's going on in America right now, obviously. And I think Donald Glover is like been really big for being such an original voice both in his acting career and his music career and his stand-up and all this so I think he's on this like elevated platform but then news broke last week that there was a SoundCloud rapper that had uploaded a song called American Pharaoh that basically has the same melody as This Is America and discussing the same subject matter Or at least that's what the accusation is. And so people are debating, like, yes, it does. No, it doesn't. So I wanted to get your thoughts. And then obviously I'll share mine as well. Okay. So I personally, I don't think it was he heard this SoundCloud rapper song was like, oh, that's a good idea. Let me steal it. I Mm -hmm. get where people are saying the melodies are similar. They really are. But not to play the devil's advocate here but if you listen to any of the like newer rappers like I can't I can't even Mm -hmm. name half of them because I'm old but (laughs) like they all they sound the same like all all their melodies are the same all their you know it's very much so carbon copies switched around a little bit so you can't tell they're like the exact same thing but mm-hmm. that's how it is nowadays. Now, I like I understand where people are like, oh, this sounds super similar. It can sound similar. It does. I'm not going to say it mm-hmm. doesn't. I can hear it. I have ears. I know they sound the same. But there's little things in it that I can that are different. So even if it gotcha. was like he heard this and he liked it, it's not, you know, the exact same thing. That's yeah. where I'm and at. I think it definitely has his like twist on it. Yeah. I think where I'm... I guess the most shocked is this feeling of like, oh, is this not as original as we thought it was? Like, because the subject matter is so similar and the melody is so similar. And it's not just like just the melody or just the lyrics or just like the title. Like, it's all of it. And so I'm curious to just, I want to know more. Like, how did this process come about? Like, 
you know, did the producer bring the concept? Did he bring the concept? Like, I want to know more because basically at this point, all they've said is no. Yeah. And I feel like it's kind of a cop out. Like, I feel like that kind of defense just doesn't work. No, for sure. Where I am, it's if you like listen to any of his older songs, mm-hmm. they all sound like This Is America. Like, they all have those like key little elements that This Is America has. And that's okay. why I'm like, okay, well, is it really him? He heard this song and copied it. Or is he just continuing to grow in the style he's had for years now? Because it's mm-hmm. such a close little difference. Is really where it's like, okay, that's kind of, it's basically, it's subjective. Sure. sure. Subject matter wise. They are very similar. That is, hands down, they are very similar. There's no arguing that. But I think, to me, I don't think it's copying. Because it's still, even though that song, what, came out in like 20... Mm -hmm. The whole being a person of color in America and the struggles of being a person of color in America and, you know gun violence and all this that this is America in cap like encapsulates mm-hmm. was still so relevant back in 2016 so I yeah. really think that saying this is my experience as a black person in America there's gun violence I'm going to tell you about it two years later is still it's still such a relevant thing that people mm-hmm. especially like people like me like white people like I don't have like I have no concept of that I live in my little now thank god I'm not Mm -hmm. like completely sheltered and I like understand how the world works (laughs) but I think for him to come out and he's got like he's on tv he's a musician like he has such a big platform so for him to come out with something like this and it's eye-opening for people like me sure and I think yeah, even absolutely. two years like two years ago it would have still been eye opening. So it's kind of it's still like even God, like a decade ago. You know? Mm-hmm. So I feel like it's still a very prominent theme. I agree with that. Yeah, no, and I think it's interesting too, like the Carters are definitely doing this yes. too. Like when you look into the the deep context of um, the apeshit video and everything that that meant. So I think, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So I don't think it was more of a like, he was like, oh, this is a good idea. This will make me money. It's like, this is still such yeah. a relevant thing. Whoops, sure. the song that came out two years ago on SoundCloud sounds like it, but that's because it was still such a prominent issue then. Mm-hmm. And I think. That's that's my opinion on it all. My little rambling opinion. But that's no, that makes it. sense. And it definitely gave me, like... Thank you for sharing that, because it gave me some, like, context as well. Like, I guess I didn't really consider, like, the time difference and the fact that, like, yeah, like, this is subject matter that multiple people are going to talk about. And there's going to be some similarities there. So, 
Yeah, no, it's an interesting point of view that I feel like has shifted mine a little bit. I just, I think the core of it is I'd like to hear him talk about it more. Like, I feel like I'd prefer him to just kind of own it. Yeah. Because I feel like it's just been swept under the rug and they don't want to talk about it. And that's exactly. It. Gotcha. Well, thank you for educating me on all these oh, things. No problem. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> What are you watching right now? What What is your TV show? Um, I like watching really old television that aired almost a decade ago. So I'm currently watching Ugly Betty. Love um, it. We love I Ugly know. Betty. I'm like almost done already, which is really sad because there's only four seasons, which is a crime. That's a crime. It what? It felt like such a long run back when I was younger and originally watching it. But now. Yeah, that's like a day. Yeah. Like, I remember my mom watching it on TV, and I was like, this is so good. It's on forever, and now I'm, like, watching it, and I'm like, there was only four seasons. Like, what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But now, I'm very into that. I'm curious, in your point of view, like, going back and watching it now, because it's been several years since I've watched it, is it problematic? Like, (laughs) I feel like that show could have had the potential to be problematic. Honestly, it's really not. Like, it has a lot of things that could have been very problematic. Sure. It does use some words that are problematic now that weren't back then. Sure. But overall, the way they go about everything is very, like, it's very family-friendly. Okay. Be, okay, yeah. good. I was, like, nervous that it wasn't going to, like, hold up. No, you it's know? still very good. And a lot of the themes are a lot still of things very don't. relevant. Yeah, absolutely. In a lot of the ways that, like, that show is just so ahead of its yes. time. So that makes me happy to hear that it's not, like, problematic. Yeah. Did you get to do anything fun for Pride? It's it's the last day. We're recording this the last day. I know. It's upsetting. I was going, I thought about going to Harrisburg Pride. You should have. I'm, I know. I just, I had so many things on my plate. And it was, I think it was this weekend. Gotcha. So it was like I had too many things to do. They were today. like really squeaking yeah, in they, at the end. Then. They really waited till the last minute. But I don't know. I'm gonna try to go to Savannah Pride because that's not until October. Oh, I know wow. it's weird. Makes no sense. Wait, why do they I don't do know. that? Because it's the South and they do things differently down there. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> but no, it's like. October, I want to say it's like 15th, 16th, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. But my best friend lives down there. Gotcha. So, like, you should come. Well, everybody, if you have time, go to Savannah yeah, Exactly. Because you've got time. And it'll be October, so it'll be so beautiful down there. Ooh, Get yes. away from the cold up here. Go down to Savannah. We need some Georgia yes. warmth. Eat some peaches. Go to yeah. Pride and then exactly. eat some peaches. Love it. Well, thank you so much. And we will chat next yes, week. Yes, of course. Sounds oh, good. Thank you for having me. Always. Oh. Joining me is my friend Andy. For those of you that don't know, Andy and I did a podcast maybe back in 2012 so it's been a minute or two 
and it was around technology. So when I knew I was going to have a technology segment on my podcast, I was like, I've got to get Andy back on here because we have the best technology conversations. Welcome, Andy. Hello to the millions of listeners. So many millions already on our first pilot episode. So many. The sponsors are really bringing people in. We really appreciate it. <laughs> so what's new in technology that you're interested in, Andy? Um, well, I don't know exactly what is new that I would like to talk about just yet. However, I do have something that I want to bring up that we can talk about later, talk about at another time. But it really bothered me, and I'm sure it will bother you too. Oh, I'm so excited. Uh, so I, don't, I actually don't remember... You know, something this outlandish, you would think I would remember exactly who said it or where uh, this conversation occurred. Uh, but I was talking to someone the other day, and they were telling me about how they use their phone. Oh, boy. And they were talking to me about uh, apps. And I said, okay, great. And we got into the conversation of me having... 170 something apps on my phone and kind of at some point I bounced between all of them and this person said oh my god how do you do that and I was like what do you mean and they got into talking about how they use the apps on their phone and before I go any further with this conversation I just want to let you know that they had a 120 gigabyte iPhone okay and so it's like a respectable amount of storage like it's not like yes they have like the baseline, like the old like sixteen gigabyte iPhone five C, like they they have like a decent phone. Right, I have one hundred twenty eight gigabytes right now, and so we'll just, that sets the bar. So they were telling me about um, checking in for an airline flight, but they had to download the airline app, and I said, "Oh, I, I you know, haven't you flown with this airline before?" And they said, "Yes." But I delete all of my apps when I'm done using them and then re-download them again when I need them. Hmm. Interesting. All right. I want you to continue because I think I might, I, I might be guilty of this as well. But it depends on the context. So I'm curious to see where this is going. So the context is um, they just, I don't know. <laughs> they delete everything on their phone when they're done using it. They have just the stock Apple apps and that's how they live their life in between the app store and downloading apps. So there are apps that I use and I can't really think of one in particular right now, but there are apps that I use that like I so rarely need them that I'm okay with the idea of keeping them deleted. And then if I need to, like I have a strong LTE connection, you know, that's got good download speeds. I can just pop it back onto my phone in a matter of seconds, and then I have the app again. So I do do this sometimes. And before I moved to New York, I used to do this with the Amtrak app a little bit because it was so sporadic that I would down like I need to book a train ticket. But then once I started visiting more frequently, I was like, eh, I'll just leave it on my phone. But I think that habit comes from, you know, the days where it was a 16 gigabyte iPhone, it was an eight gigabyte iPhone or whatever. And I think now. Um, especially in the age of, like my iPads, two hundred fifty-six gigabytes. Um, my iPhone's one hundred twenty-eight. Like I, I don't, I don't have to worry about that anymore. And like I don't have to worry about like music I'm syncing from iTunes because Apple Music is a thing and stuff like that. So I think it's, I guess, an old habit that some people still retain. So the more that I think about this, 
I see a similarity with myself because I think about how I see you use your phone sometimes. I know if I were to go into your camera roll, I would be able to scroll for hours on end and at some point it would be the photos. Myself, on the other hand, if I'm at an event like a hockey game or something, I'll take 20 pictures, but then I'll find the two that I like and delete the rest. Oh, no. Oh, no, that is not me at all because... See, the reaction that you're having right now is the exact same reaction I have about the people deleting their apps. I think it's repulsive. Gotcha. Yeah, no, see, I keep everything. And there's things that, like, sometimes I'll scroll way back, like, you know, how the iPhone will use um, machine learning to bring in, like, certain results. Like, oh, you were doing this last year. And it's, like, sometimes it's a really dumb screenshot of something. And let me say, this is a segue real quick, though. How do you feel about iOS 11 and then... It, it continues into iOS 12 as well, but iOS 11 screenshot feature where it brings it to the corner. It's very great because 95% of the time that I take screenshots, I intend on editing them or cropping them to some level. So the fact that I can jump in right there instead of having to close my app and go out to my camera roll and blah, 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 blah. I think it's, it's one of my favorite things. Okay. I wanted to make sure because I feel the same way, but I've learned that as I follow different people on Twitter from the tech circles, like people hate this feature. And I think it's really interesting because usually I would say eight out of 10 times, if I'm taking a screenshot, it's so I can then send it to somebody and I can literally send it right there and then delete it. And I don't have to keep all these stupid screenshots. However, I would say I'm still guilty of it. I'm just not as guilty of it. Um, Because if you scroll through my camera library, which is, two terabytes of iCloud storage at this point. Like, there are some old screenshots in there, which at this point I'm just keeping because when I see them, I laugh and see how old, like, iOS looked or how small my screen was and how bad the resolution was. But in terms of actual photography, you're right. I pulled up the Photos app on my iPad real quick, and I have 42,000 photos and 5,000 videos. That hurts me. We live in a digital age. Why Why not delete it? Like, why not keep it? Why delete it? There's just so much. Why would you delete your apps then? See, like, another thing that I've known about you is that uh, you constantly have 800,000 emails. That's true. That's true. So and I'm completely obsessive about my inbox to the point where people were making fun of me at work the other day because I spent 20 <laughs> minutes cleaning it out and sorting everything into folders. I so wish I had, I had your drive when it comes to email organization. So I think these are three separate like categories for me. So photos, I want to keep everything because, you know, I might need an original or I might want a different angle that maybe I thought I wouldn't want in the moment, but maybe I need it now. And so in that sense, I'm very nostalgic. Now, when it comes to my apps, I get very bothered when my screen is cluttered with apps. And so like I need you know, the second page to be my social apps and it needs to go in a certain order and it's very muscle memory for me. So if I start to feel clutter on my home screen, I get this like anxiety about it. So, so let's I talk have about... to, so I have to delete these apps. And then my email is just a matter of the fact that I scam and only open what I need to open and that's that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about this kind of paradigm shift that I've experienced in my uh, however many iPhone years it's been. I've noticed that 
back in the day, mm-hmm. we'll say iOS whatever through iOS 7, I would sort all my apps in folders. And when I needed them, I would go and search for them. Now, this makes sense because Spotlight Search wasn't always a thing. Yeah. And when Spotlight Search first came out, I refused to use it. I would have to go to the correct folder, my social folder. I would have to scroll through however many apps that I had Mm -hmm. to find the one that I wanted. Fast forward to today, maybe I just don't have as much time as I did then, but I I Spotlight Search for everything. I'm seeing a a shift there, too. And I think that's part of the machine learning, too, is like, spotlight has become more useful because I would say maybe it's a little bit of like a 50 50, but half the time, if I pull in the spotlight, it might actually have the app I need to switch back to. So it does a pretty decent job of deciphering like, all right, you might need to go back to Safari because you're writing notes and it's based off an article you're reading and that somebody sent you on messages. So also here's a link to messages and, it's very useful that way. And so even when I'm like making a phone call and I need to find a contact real quick, I'll just swipe down and type their name and hit call. Like, so I also find that spotlight is becoming a bigger, bigger part of my workflow just because it's faster and our phones harvest so much more data than they used to. I agree. So we've been talking for 11 minutes now and I know your original. Oh my goodness. Keep this short. Uh, so do we want to find another subject? We sure can. And for the listeners out there, I have like my, my target time frame is like 20 to 30 minutes on a subject, but I kind of know me and my friends and I know that we're going to end up rabbit trailing off to other things. And I'm okay with that because, um, it's my podcast and I can just do whatever I want, which is a lot of fun. (laughs) On the other hand, I am here to keep us in mind because I'm sitting in a sweltering hot office right now. Oh, right, right. No, see, my central air is still going. I just had to turn off my fan. Um, so talking about the, the way that we're changing the how we use our devices, I think it's appropriate to talk about um, portables. Um, I think in a big way, portables have become the go-to form factor for people. So there's really two angles on this that I want to talk about. And one is the MacBook Air, because everybody's talking about it right now. And on the other side about that is the iPad Pro, because they serve overall similar markets. These people want fast, ultra-portable machines. So I guess my first question is, do you believe there's a second coming of the MacBook Air? Uh, I think for all intents and purposes, the MacBook Air, as we know it, is dead. I think we'll see... Um, a revision of the standard MacBook line. I think we'll see a price drop that puts it down closer to the $1,000 or $1,200 range. Um, and I, I I was actually looking at a MacBook Air a little while ago and realized that the screen that is on that thing is just abominable and there's oh, no it's so bad in the world. And so we need to change that. Yeah. But to answer your question, I, I think that the MacBook Air that we've known is pretty much uh, dead at this point i think it's interesting too and i think this plays into the ipad conversation as well i think there is beginning to be a shift in the tech industry because obviously we get this these opinions and these um articles from people who i would say like are in their rough like 40s right and 
they've been tech journalists for a long time and they're very respected and they do great work. However, they I'm finding are much less adapt to actually change their workflows. So for me, I'm 25 and my, my computer is an iPad pro. I don't need Mac OS. When I pull a laptop and boot up my MacBook pro, I'm suddenly, you know, reminded like, oh, that's right. I got to update this file and I have to download a DMG packet to install this software. And, and yes, that's changed a little bit with the Mac app store, but everything feels so antiquated to me. And like, I don't need a desktop. Why would I need a desktop? I like that iOS sorts my files for me because it's one less thing for me to manage. And it's interesting to see how tech journalists that, that drives them absolutely bonkers. And we can swing back around to this, and this is something I'm passionate about, and then I'll, I talk about on on end. But going back to the MacBook Air, I think it's interesting that when the MacBook Air was introduced, it was the future version of where they wanted the MacBook line to go. Correct. And then when they introduced what is now the MacBook with the Retina display, they said, this is where we want the MacBook Air to go. This is where we want our laptop line to go. And we saw that trickle down into the MacBook Pro line when it got the touch bar and it got even slimmer and the butterfly keyboard that everybody's so passionate about. <laughs> and, and all of these things. So I, I think it's interesting that we're at this point where I see the bloggers basically demanding that the MacBook Air lives on when that was never the intent. I don't know. So my technology consumption has shifted more from reading blogs to listening to podcasts. I'm in the car four hours a day. I don't have time to listen to or read my all the feeds that I have saved. Occasionally I'll do it on a lunch break, but for that it's, it's mostly just the headlines. So my, what I've gathered from my consumption recently is that the people that I follow are okay with the MacBook Air going away and Interesting. kind of fall in the same line as I do, uh, thinking that we'll just kind of see the MacBook line be bumped down and then we'll mm-hmm. see the MacBook Pro and Apple will have those two tiers. Yeah. So it is interesting, and you did mention age, and I think that the people that I listen to on a regular basis are mostly, for the most part, a similar age bracket of like 25 to 35 or something like that, where it's a a younger opinion. Mm -hmm. So it it does skew away from the traditional, um, I need this laptop to do my work, and I refuse to use anything else. Yeah, and I think that's interesting, too, because I would say these bloggers and stuff like that that I feel like I get these opinions from, it's just interesting that, like, thinking back now, and if we applied this to another situation, like, do you remember when they introduced the iPod Nano, and Steve Jobs came on stage, and he's like, the iPod Mini is the best-selling product we've ever sold, it's amazing, it's making all of our money, and we're killing it today. And here's the iPod Nano. And everybody went wild. And nobody but Apple would do this. And wow, this is the best thing that's ever happened. Like, I feel like there would be such criticism now 
if you know Tim Cook came out and said we're getting rid of the you know the iPad and we're doing this and introduce this whole new lineup of devices and I feel like it would be a totally different level of scrutiny today because I feel like we're at a weird turning point where the older generation of tech journalists have kind of set in stone in their ways and they're kind of at the end of their evolution in terms of what they're willing to use and adapt to. I'll agree with that. And granted, let me just disclaimer, like that's a sweeping generalization. Not everybody's like that. And I'm not saying those people can't change, but I'm just seeing this interesting dynamic shift in the generations in the tech field. I think the headphone jack is another example of that. Let's not even talk about that. <laughs> uh, really, that, that, that topic is just not worth the energy anymore. But we're still talking about it. And it's been two, almost three years. And I feel like at least once a week, I hear somebody bring it up in the tech field. And I'm like, are we really still talking about this? I hear coworkers bring it up uh, on a bi-weekly basis. Interesting. And I think on that same note, it's like, I'm very excited about USB-C. I think it's a very awesome up-and-coming format. I think it's great that it's all one port. It's so powerful. I can daisy-chain all these things. But I feel like there's a lot of those same tech journals that are like, I just want USB-A. And I don't want to do anything else. And I don't want to have to adapt to new things. And it's like, I understand the frustration of dongles. I get that. But I think it's such a trade-off to get to where USB-C can take us. And it's a temporary problem. Yeah, exactly. So I just think it's interesting how stuck in the sand some of these people are. Yeah, I... I... It is weird because we talk about the older tech journalists, but then I also think about all of the people that I deal with outside of this space, just normal people mm-hmm. who don't care. They don't go to tech blogs. They don't follow tech news. And they share that same opinion with those people. Like, oh my God, why is my charging cable changing? Sure. Oh my God, why don't my headphones work anymore? Does Apple just need to do a better job explaining that? I think that they would have to find a creative way to do it in their marketing. And I don't necessarily know if it's worth the energy for them to do it. Mm-hmm. Because I, that, I think about a... a platform like Apple Pay. So many of like, I don't want to say the common folk, but the everyday user, that's a better way of saying it. <laughs> the everyday user, they're, still kind of scared of Apple Pay. And I'm like, you don't understand. Like, this is so much more secure than what you're doing now. Which I actually is- have a funny story about this. Go for it. Uh, I think it was around last Thanksgiving or Christmas. I was at my dad's house and uh, one of his friends was over. And they, the subject of mobile payments came up. And uh, my dad's friend said something along the lines of, oh, why would you do that? You're just begging to have your information stolen. <laughs> and I had quite possibly the greatest well actually moment um of my my life and you know i went into i i just broke it down and i said this is why you are misinformed you know Mm -hmm. mobile payments they don't even use your real credit card number they use a recycled 
account number that is only used for one transaction. Yeah. And the only way to authenticate that is by using some kind of passcode or your thumbprint or now your face. And, you know, credit cards can be replicated, but those individual account numbers cannot. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I just, I want like this giant PSA campaign from Apple to just be like, use Apple Pay. Because Apple Pay is the best. I really just enjoy using it. It is great. And I, I try to use it whenever I'm at a place that. Mm-hmm. But I think the main problem is we're still kind of in a place where it's not ubiquitous enough for people to make that their default. And so when something is not their default, they're not going to go out of their way to change their happiness. So, I mean, if I'm at the grocery store and it takes Apple pay, but I have to kind of reach my arm around the counter and do this whole weird looking thing. I'd rather just insert my card. Yeah. I agree with that. And more than likely almost everyone else would rather do that too a quick example of this is when i lived in pennsylvania i would use apple pay at subway all the time because their customer terminal was customer facing and i could tap my watch and move on but in new york the one that's closest to my work is on the other side of the counter and i can't just be like can you please dislodge your customer terminal and let me use apple like i'm just like here's my card yep which is a shame run into that all the time which is a shame so I, it's interesting, though, because I live in Philadelphia. You live in New York. I frequent Chicago a lot. Mm-hmm. When I'm in places like Chicago, I use Apple Pay almost 90% more because it's just available in more places. Yeah. For some reason, it's not taking off in businesses here. What I have also noticed is that smaller businesses, privately owned coffee shops, mm-hmm. um, corner stores, and things like that, that are all using newer like point of sale systems for some reason they have invested more into that space than a grocery store chain like acme has yeah i'd agree with that i think it's it's interesting i think with that i think these startup brands like coffee shops and such like that they're having to rely on the tech space to start their businesses so they're relying on you know a square point of system or something like that i believe the other one that i see all the time is called clover mm-hmm. and like those come with apple pay and i i wonder how many of them like know they take apple pay i i think for the most part if there's no sticker people assume that they don't yeah i mean by now i know hey that's a square terminal and mm-hmm. they take apple pay whether it says it or not yeah but the the average joe just they don't know that. Speaking of magical things that we can tap our devices on, this is going to be a reoccurring segment for Andy and I to talk about, and that is, is air power ever coming? Um, I hope so. <laughs> and I think that's my other part of the question is, do we care anymore? I certainly do care. I, I really want to. But on the other end of it, I, I, you saw my anchor charger the other week, which is my my cheap um charger, and it's great. And I have the official Apple Watch like dock, which is the same concept as I just lay my watch on there and it charges. And the only thing that AirPower can really provide for me is my AirPods, which I'm then gonna have to buy another estimated sixty dollar charging case for. 
No, let's just, be real. When the air power does ship, they'll likely ship a new set of AirPods as well, and you'll just end up buying those. Probably. And that's just what happens. But I'm very curious. Like, what's the holdout? Because they seemed very excited to show it off when they showed well, off the iPhone 10, and then it just disappeared. There was that Bloomberg article a couple, I want to say last week, um, that mentioned that they were having production issues with the the mats. Um, I, I forget how they worded it. There was some kind of issue with providing enough voltage to that big of a mat for multiple device. I don't know. There's there's some issue with multiple device charging that's causing a holdup. Yeah. The delay is for. Great. I'm glad I asked that because I totally never saw that. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I would find that after after this and because it was very full of information. Um, but yeah, it was Bloomberg. Mark Gurman wrote it. So it's pretty legit. Gotcha. Yeah. And that man always has some sort of secret knowledge. But yes, I whoever, I really whoever his that. contact is is like he owes them so much money. Yes, so much. I mean, he he gave them a career, or and, he, they gave him a career rather. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. On the subject of wireless charging, real quick, and this is completely random, but before we got on here, I accidentally set my Apple TV remote on my Qi charger, and it gives like a little like error blink to let me know that it is not a compatible device. Interesting. But can the new Apple TV just have a Qi charger built into the top so I can just lay my remote on it? I think that'd be fantastic. And it'd make so much sense. I hadn't thought about that, but that's a great idea. I think they should just build it into the base. It would take nothing on their end. And it would just be cool. <laughs> like, to be able to just sit my Apple TV remote back on my Apple TV and a charge. Like, I, I, I've maybe charged this remote three times in the three years I've owned my Apple TV. Or at least this iteration of the Apple TV. Yeah, it doesn't die very frequently. It just doesn't die, but for that aspect, I just want to be like, it'd just be cool to sit it on there. I always had this vision of, back in the day before wireless charging, that there would be some sort of like, old school iPhone looking dock, or iPod looking dock, where you could just dock the remote into the top of the Apple TV, and it just made so much sense, and now wireless charging just brings it to a whole new level. That's a great idea. I agree. (laughs) All right. I think we've covered about everything. Anything else you can think of bringing up that you would like to share with the audience? Um, Not that I will think I could expand on cleverly enough right now, but at some point, maybe when we do the next one, um, I think it's worth talking about the dreadful MacBook keyboards. And... I, I really wanted to get in on that this episode because it's we just finally got an update on it. Which here, um, here maybe this, maybe, this could maybe be a podcast thing. It. Who cares? This could be a podcast thing. You know, next time we can talk about it. We can go over the details of the replacement program and then I can take my laptop in and try and get it replaced and then follow up on the following episode. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great. I, I like that idea. I do too. You can document all the amazing um, amazing things you overhear in an Apple store. I really I just always love the conversations that you overhear in an Apple store. Yes, that will be a great segment. And uh, I'll probably also have stories about how terrible the Apple store is because King of Prussia and Cherry Hill are some of the worst. You have some rough, rough Apple store experiences. Yeah. I, for the most part, I have 
uh, a lot of Apple letdowns, but somehow keep coming back. I think I think that's mostly my fault, is I just keep pushing things on you. And I'm reckless with my money. That too. Well, this has been fun. This has been fun. It, it's right back in the old groove of things. Yes. I noticed that we both um, stammered a lot less and managed to uphold a conversation for 30 minutes without any dead air. That's amazing. Perfect. And we hit the 30-minute mark within 10 seconds. So... <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being on. I look forward to talking to you next week. Yes, let's do it. See ya. Bye. For my last segment, I'm here with Daniel Gay, who you might notice has the same last name as Amanda. That's because he is her husband, and he's also the other side of Whimsy and Our World Canvas. And he's also doing so many amazing things. He's working in production and film and television. He's a busy bee. But he's giving us some time to talk to us about current events and just helping us understand. But also stay tuned in with all the things that are happening in the world. Because it's so easy to tune out right now. Daniel, how are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. How are are you doing? Good. I should also mention Daniel's also my other host that is a resident New Yorker. I'm very proud of those titles. <laughs> <laughs> one one would assume considering Amanda is too. Yeah. We have to be. <laughs> we're we're happy to be here. Yes. So obviously kind of a big week for New York. We had the congressional primary, the congressional democratic primary. Yeah, so there were uh, six states this week that had uh, primary elections, and the one that was making kind of all the headlines this week is actually straight from uh, Amanda's My Home District in Queens. Uh, It was kind of a week that will make political history. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was a candidate on the Democratic ticket for Congress, and uh, she unseated a 10-term Congressional Democrat, Joseph Crawley, uh, and assuming she wins her general in November, which is very likely because Queens is 80% registered Democrat, uh, she will become the youngest woman ever elected to U.S. Congress. That's amazing. Yeah. We're doing great things. Kind of a big deal. (laughs) So uh, today I just wanted to do kind of a, a... deep dive into how she pulled off this upset and why it isn't as shocking as the media is making it out to be. And don't fret and worry that we're going to get political. I I just want to break down how she did it, mostly. Sounds good to me. So uh, you kind of have to start with the uh, significance of her defeating Joseph Crawley. Uh, Joseph Crowley is, like I said, a 10-term congressional Democrat. First, we should explain the significance of her defeating Joseph Crowley. Uh, Let's start at the local level. His power in Queens is that he is the Democratic Party chairman. Uh, So he kind of controls Queens politics. Uh, As the party chairman in Queens... You can kind of uh, pick who to endorse and and you have some control over the rules related to elections, um, such as, you know, types of signatures that are required, uh, how many um, you can, like I said, you can kind of endorse your picks. Uh, He really has shaped 
Queen's politics um, to, you know, be people he endorses. And that can be a little problematic yeah. when you have uh, when you have a national, you know, or a federal congressman who's also controlling his entire borough uh, of New York City. You know, we have millions of people in Queens. Um and they're all affected kind of by choices of this one guy. Uh, and, you know, New York is notorious for its corruption. To make things even shiftier, he was essentially appointed to power 20 years ago. Uh, the congressman at the time was, a you know, a friend of his and uh, resigned post-primary and therefore got to appoint the party pick for the general. And like I said, Queens always goes Democrat. Mm-hmm. So he was pretty much guaranteed the seat. He was he was appointed a guaranteed seat and has held it for 20 years. Uh, no one challenged him for the last 14 years. Before that, he was only ever challenged, I believe, three times. Wow, that's crazy. Because uh, that's what I was going to ask next is like, is anybody trying to challenge this guy? Like, it's obviously problematic that he has like, all this power and all this say in his own elections and obviously that's something that needs to be revisited but yeah i was curious like are there other people challenging him is she the first like but those who have have failed and uh, i mean like i said new york is notorious for its corrupt politics uh so it's all kind of strange and then to add to it this guy was considered next in line to be speaker of the house after you know nancy pelosi steps aside oh, wow now we don't know if that was going to happen this fall supposedly she has the votes um assuming you know the democrats would take back the majority mm-hmm. uh but there are you know kind of a new wave of uh democrats winning primaries that could potentially lose her those votes and so there was a chance that you know either this election cycle or maybe you know another 10 years from now he he would have become the next Democratic Speaker of the House. So it was kind of a huge deal that this 28-year-old woman, uh, 28-year-old Latina woman, un- you know, unseated him. Yeah, that's amazing. And it seems like she kind of came up out of nowhere, so to speak. Like, what's her background look like? Has she worked on the public level before? Well, she was... Uh, she was a worker on the Bernie Sanders campaign. Okay. And other than that, no. Nine months ago, she was a waitress. Wow. So, uh, obviously, the narrative that the media kind of is giving off this week is is exactly that. How did a 28-year-old who has never held elected office pull this off? And what the news is forgetting when they promote that narrative is ultimately these big federal positions are determined by local elections. And where Alexandria excelled was getting her name and ideas out at the local level. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, she's been out on the streets campaigning since last fall, door to door, thousands of doors. Uh, She's had posters up everywhere, volunteers out on the streets in the Bronx and Queens. She's been attending local events. Uh, She's been at community board meetings. She became a more recognizable face on the ground than Joe Crawley, who really didn't seem to start his ground campaign until just two weeks before the election. Oh, wow. So he really didn't take this threat seriously. No, no one seemed to think this was even possible. And I thought I saw, and maybe I'm totally wrong about this, but I thought I saw something that he doesn't even typically like come to New York. He typically stays in Virginia. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that is kind of a standard practice for Congress okay, people okay. across the country. Uh, for New York politicians, it's a little more iffy. Uh, you figure when you're, you know, the representative from Idaho, mm-hmm. you're you're not going to be able to always be in Idaho. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, these Northeast uh, states and, and, you know, this even like the Carolinas and stuff, it, it's not uncommon for those representatives to spend you know a nice amount of time in their home districts and he really hasn't done that interesting um yeah he i mean he'll come back uh but he's been living down there for you know almost two decades and you know his family's down there and i don't know that you really can bring his family into it i like you know he wants his family to be close to him absolutely that makes sense uh, but uh, there definitely was a vibe in the neighborhood that he wasn't around enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that I mean, too, I can... I'm sure is like, you can't really care about like, you can't really represent like, and I know this is on like a super local level, but like you can't care about the quality of education kids in the neighborhood are receiving. If your own kids aren't going to school there, like obviously there are people that are going to care, but like, it's you don't have any vested interest in the matter yeah yeah so ultimately i think what really helped alexandria is uh like i said her her ground campaign he wasn't running one and she was yeah and uh you know the media seemed so surprised this week but ultimately she wasn't trying to make rachel maddow know who she was she wanted the nepalese immigrant who doesn't speak english to know her name she targeted those who had never voted, got them registered, made sure they knew when and where to cast their ballot for her. Uh, she was running campaign ads uh, and like posters and stuff in more languages than I, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but I, I would think anyone really ever has. How many candidates have mm-hmm. to put out, you know, Facebook videos speaking to their Nepalese voters? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, you know, as a NY14 resident myself, the media shock almost blew my mind because it was obvious to us locals for months that she had a real shot at this. And mm-hmm. I personally felt like she had it in the bag. Uh, so let's talk about who these locals are. Uh, I heard a lot of journalists this week calling NY14 the district of Archie Bunker, uh, which is a, a bit of dated reference for some of us younger people yeah i was like i was like i the name sounds familiar but why i don't know. he was you know the fictional character from uh 1970s sitcom all in the family uh it, okay. it was very much a, a sitcom of uh a very blue collar white queens that doesn't exist much anymore i mean it's it's still yeah. there but not in ny14 I think where it is is further out in communities like Bayside and, and, and further. NY14 is a district of immigrants that includes neighborhoods in the Bronx and Queens, and 70% of the population are people of color. And don't hold me to this, but I'm pretty confident that we are the most diverse congressional district in the United States. Uh, yeah, it definitely seems that way. Like, I, I don't think that would be a stretch that if you're not the most, like, it's definitely... I mean, Jackson Heights alone, which is a neighborhood in the Queens part of the district, has 167 Mm -hmm. languages spoken in under half a square mile. It's insane. So, 
the demographics have changed. And, you know, there are a lot of people acting like Alexandria just won this because of demographics. And I don't think that's true either. She got out <laughs> there. She connected with the people. She had big ideas. Uh, and, you know, kind of like we discussed, people felt that their representative was absent. I think people were refreshed to see another option for the first time in 14 years. And not just another option. A young Latina woman who nine months ago was working as a waitress understands the day-to-day struggles of the people in her district. Uh, her campaign even used the hashtag one of us. Don't get me wrong. A lot of the locals have a lot of respect for Joe Crawley and how he's fought, mm-hmm. how, you know, he's fought for years for social justice on the Hill and, and things like, you know, Obamacare. But he's been living in Virginia for well over a decade, almost two, and I really believe his constituents felt that he was too disconnected to understand us and represent us. And the streets of Queens and the Bronx are entirely different worlds than suburban Virginia. Mm-hmm. And especially because it's been that long, like New York is so different than it has been over the last 20 years. And I think another part of that is like, I think this is kind of the... I don't want to say the positive side, but the upside of the administration we have now, because it's done two things. First of all, anybody can run. And I think it's really driven home that point, you know, for better or for worse, that anybody can run for office. And you get these really, like, positive interactions from that with people like her. And the other part of that is, like, people understand that their voice, particularly their representative really affects what the administration can and cannot do. And so as a result, I feel like people are wanting a representative that is going to match with their voice, that's going to understand their issues. And so on that end, like, I feel like she, in a sense, and this is kind of a broad generalization, is she is probably one of the most representative candidates for representative for her district, if that for makes sure, sense. For sure, for sure. And uh, I'd also like to say, I think most people in NY14 knew who she was even before that viral campaign ad that everyone's now sharing even hit the web. Mm-hmm. She was out, she was talking to people, she was engaging with people for months. And he didn't do that. Uh, but the even crazier thing is that her campaign spent just over $300,000 and Joe Crawley's spent over a million. Oh, wow. But then things get even crazier. And that kind of leads me into my next topic here on this election. So her work on the ground was combined with her commitment to not take corporate or lobbyist PAC money. Mm-hmm. And I think those are the two things that really pushed her to victory. Uh, so her average donation on her campaign was $22. She took no corporate or lobbyist PAC money. Like Mm -hmm. I said, Joe Crowley ran an over a million dollar campaign against her. And only 2% of that money were donations under $200. And the rest, the rest came from, you know, corporate PACs or, or, uh, you know, major fundraising events. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to list off some of the companies that he was taking money from because it's kind of shocking. And this isn't just him. This is a problem with almost all of our representatives. Just naming ones that, you know, listeners would recognize. Uh, Mm -hmm. Facebook, Google, 
Capital One, Aflac, Microsoft, TD Bank, H&R Block, uh, Anheuser-Busch, Honeywell, UPS, T-Mobile, um, Cisco Systems, Marriott, JP Morgan. I'm flipping through a very large list and skipping it. I'm yeah. skipping so many. Uh, Experian, Lockheed Martin, Discover, Quicken Loans, PepsiCo, Major League Baseball, Wawa. <laughs> like, Wawa of all. Like, that's insane. HSBC, like, Disney, just... <laughs> uh, News Corp, Viacom, uh, Ally Bank. That's my bank. Why is my bank giving money to my congressman? <laughs> That's 21st so Century Fox, the list goes on and on. General Electric, I could go for forever. And I'm skipping, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of companies that the, even the average American wouldn't recognize. But uh, it, we got to get the money out of politics. That's the one political thing I'm going to say on this. Uh, that's yeah. that's a yeah. personal opinion. But I, I think it, it's really what led her to success is that she told her community who you know is struggling to pay the increasing rent struggling to get Mm health care their wages aren't going up she told them i'm not gonna take corporate money you guys are gonna put me into office and i trust that you will and they came out for her that's amazing so I feel like I've seen a little bit of this going around, but I don't know often enough to speak to it, and maybe you do, but like, hasn't there been some sort of pushback within the party against her? Yeah, so <laughs> that was kind of actually what I wanted to discuss next. Why are people scared? Uh, you know, you could go down this rabbit hole for a whole other podcast, but mm-hmm. ultimately, I think the Democrats seem to be scared because she's threatening the establishment uh, she literally upset all of new york politics uh it's a corrupt world that i think now you know new yorkers are starting to realize they can change and uh i mean even today randomly uh, bill de blasio uh, had a press conference where he's changed his positions on some things i, I was briefly reading about like I, suddenly people seem to be aligning with Alexandria so that they can like save face because they think the people are coming for them. I'll take it. And then, you know, the Republicans are are certainly demonizing her because of her association Mm -hmm. with the democratic socialists of America, the, the DSA. And, you know, like I said, I mostly wanted to talk about why it wasn't shocking that she won and how she unseated the, you know, king of queens as people call him we should probably just skip the heated topic of the dsa versus socialism and (laughs) maybe we should just jump to final lessons (laughs) that's fine uh so i have two final lessons from all of this the first is face your constituents crawley didn't even show up to two of the three public debates that had been scheduled between alexandria and himself and Mm -hmm. he only agreed to a moderated televised debate after immense community pressure and to a debate in front of his constituents after the New York Times wrote an op-ed just a week before his election, urging him to either face his people or risk losing his seat. Wow. That debate, where he finally faced his constituents, took place just three days before the election. And by that point, it was too late for him. That's crazy. 
And then I guess my final lesson would be if you represent a safe, non-swing district, run on big ideas. Just because some (laughs) people might always vote Democrat or always vote Republican, that doesn't mean they want more of the status quo. With all due respect to everything Joe has done for New York 14, he was more of the same. Like I said, rent, mm-hmm. rent is increasing. Healthcare isn't accessible. Our wages aren't going up. We had 20 years of Joe, and it was time for a different voice at the table from a different generation with vastly different life experience and perspective on the world. And New York 14 picked Alexandria as that voice last week. Yeah, and one thing I'll share is, like, it's not just happening in the one district. So, for example, in my district, which is the ninth district, um, we had a three-term, sorry, a three-year congresswoman, um, Yvette Clark, who, by all intents and purposes, has been a fine congresswoman. But we had Adam, I'm going to try and not mess up his last name, Buckadeco, um, run against her. And he's this 30-year-old community organizer, son of immigrant parents, try to unseat her because overall, over the last three years, she's been pretty inactive. It's not that she's been bad. She's just not been good. Um, and really going out there and fighting for the people in her district. And she's just kind of sat amongst the Democratic Party, and her mother was also in the seat before her. And so she's very much part of the establishment in that sense. And so it's really interesting. That is so New York. Yeah, absolutely. And so she's just been kind of handed the seat, and they've just continued to control it as a family. And she literally... So Yvette actually won the primary at least by the initial um the initial count because obviously like absentee isn't in yet and there are some other things like some of the districts haven't reported um but it's interesting because she literally won like 51 percent to i think it was like 49.9 so these people are running and i think something i said to them on twitter in relation to pride but just in general is just because you're Democrats and we're a democratic state doesn't mean we're just going to assume that you're going to represent our values as New Yorkers. We will question you and we will make you represent us. For sure. We can revisit this again. I'm sure Mm -hmm. we will in the fall because New York also has a, you know, yet another huge (laughs) race coming up this fall that will, Mm -hmm kind of determine the direction of the democratic party and that's the race for governor between cynthia nixon and uh, incumbent andrew cuomo mm-hmm. i'm so excited for that race i really am i'm, I'm very curious to see what happens it and will it, be interesting and like i said i think this is kind of the i don't want to say the trump offense but the trump effect that these people who are not traditionally politicians are now running and saying okay we're gonna take that that mindset that representatives are representatives and they can be anybody they don't have to be these career politicians but that also doesn't mean we have to buy into like the bigotry and division that you're selling for sure yeah yeah well thank you so much for all this information yeah this was great i feel like i learned so much about her and i'm so excited about all the things that she's doing i'm sure we're gonna hear a lot about her in the future yeah, I I have a feeling she's going to become a pretty big name in the party. That's I agree. For sure. I agree. I think it'll be interesting to see how she adapts to her new role because I think 
I can understand how some people would have the concern that while she has strong ideals and values and stuff like that, like she's not held office before and it's a big job. But also I think at its core, what really measures if, if you're going to do a good job or not is how you represent your people. Yeah. Which is theoretically what this nation should all be about. That's all I've got. All right. Well, we will talk <laughs> to you next week and see what else is going on in the world. It's a whole week from now, so who knows what will be going on yeah, there. Everything <laughs> will change. Absolutely. All right. All right. Bye. And that concludes our very first episode, episode one of Chris and Co. Create and Change. Thank you guys so much for listening. I have to give a quick shout out to our friends at Anchor who have made this process amazing in making this podcast and distributing it. Thanks to them. We're available everywhere podcasts are listened to. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Casts. It goes on and on and on. I will say if you choose to listen to us on Anchor, you guys can send in questions and things that you would like us to talk about on the podcast, and we can certainly do that. Otherwise, make sure to tell your friends about this podcast. Make sure that you subscribe. Subscribers is how we grow. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week.